Good morning, church. Today we do come to Micah chapter 5. And as a worship team, we were very tempted to start with a Christmas carol. We were that close to doing it because this is an important passage that we typically read during the Christmas season. But then I remembered that it's anathema to play Christmas music before Thanksgiving, which of course we all agree with. Right? Except I know my, my father doesn't. He probably hasn't stopped playing Christmas music. He plays it all year long. Any, anybody like that here? Okay, all right, a couple weirdos. All right, that's fine. <laughs> this is the prophecy that tells us, as Gordon just mentioned, that the Christ would be born in Bethlehem. It's directly quoted in Matthew chapter 2, verse 6. And in the Gospel of John, John utilizes it in chapter 7, verse 42, which says, Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? The answer, of course, is yes. The prophecy is found in Micah 5. But there's a lot more to Micah chapter 5, verses 1 through 6, than this well-known prophecy. This text is all about the shepherd king that the Lord provides for his people. So let's stand together and read Micah chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. Again, Micah 5, 1 through 6. This is the word of the Lord. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth from me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. When the Assyrian comes into our land and treads in our places, then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men, they shall shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword and the land of Nimrod at its entrances, and he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and treads within our border. Please be seated. And let's pray together. Lord, as we come to your word, we pray for understanding. We pray that you would open it up to us and we confess that it's only by your spirit that we can understand your word. So we ask right now, Holy Spirit, that you would open your word to us, that you would not only help give us understanding, but mold our lives around your word to make us look more like your son. We ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Before we dive into the text, <clears throat> I want to take a couple of minutes to talk about biblical interpretation and how we should approach the Old Testament in light of the New Testament. And hopefully it, these kinds of conversations equip you to read the Bible for yourself powerfully. That's, that's one of our goals here, that you go home and that you are encouraged to get in the word for yourself. And we have the privilege right now to be on this side of the cross. Okay? We've also been given the gracious gift of the whole counsel of God's word, beginning to end. Everything that God intended to give his people about himself in writing, we have 
Praise the Lord. That's pretty amazing, right? That God would give us himself in writing. But we have to remember that Micah's original audience did not have this whole gift. So when we come to a text like ours today, in order to fully understand it, we have to keep two things in mind. Two things. First, what did the author originally mean by his words? So, in this instance, what did Micah mean? And second, how does this text fit within the whole Bible? Okay, they're, they're two different issues, related but different. What did Micah originally mean, and how does it fit within the whole context of Scripture? There's two different ways of answering these questions. Some Bible interpreters, with very good intentions, will say that the author's original intent and meaning is the only meaning of importance. And if we want to know what a passage means, then we have to interpret that passage only within the original context that the author wrote it in, historically and literarily. They would argue that the interpretation found within that approach is the only legitimate interpretation of the text. So that's been the approach of many well-meaning Bible scholars for the last 200 or so years. And it's helpful. It's very helpful. Certainly, the main interpretation of a biblical text is whatever the author originally intended. That's important. It's incredibly important to know the historical and literary context of any given passage. For instance, what I mean by historical context. Micah is written in 700 BC, right around there, circa there, during his lifetime. It's important to know that context, what he's writing around historically. And it's important to know the literary context, okay? What kind of genre, what type of literature are we reading? Those are all important questions. We have to know the answers to those of any given passage in order to interpret it correctly. Okay, but if we only understand a text like Micah 5, 1 through 6, by trying to understand the mind of an 8th century BC prophet, then we would miss on how the text fits within the rest of God's revealed word. Okay. The other approach has been to see portions of the Old Testament as only relevant as prophecy about Jesus. Okay, this, is, this is poor as well. Right? It disregards the original context and meaning. Sometimes even taking a text like Micah 5, 1 through 6, out of the book of Micah and only seeing it as, as relevant in regards to prophecies about Jesus. A good example of that is our text today. We learned last week Remember with me, Micah 4, 9 through 10 and 11 through 13 are the first two of three responses God gives to his people for their current crisis of invasion. You remember that? He gives the first two in chapter 4. And Micah 5, 1 through 6 is the third response. So we have to see these verses fitting into the greater project of Micah, the book of Micah, in order to understand them correctly. They are related to what came before, and they're related to what is coming after. And when we take a passage like this, like Micah 5, 1 through 6, out of Micah, or out of its historical and literary context, we make the mistake of disregarding the Old Testament as only valuable as some type of mine 
for small bits about Jesus. But you'll remember from our time in the beginning of Matthew, you'll remember the whole Bible is about Jesus. The whole Bible is about Jesus. The New Testament isn't a better Bible within a Bible. The whole Old Testament isn't useful only for small bits or prophecies about Jesus. The whole Bible is the story of redemption from beginning to end. How God has interacted with his people through time, which means it's all about Jesus. So what do we do? How do we correctly interpret a passage like Micah 5, 1 through 6? We answer both questions. We do both. We try to understand Micah in his historical and literary context first, and then we understand him in the context of the rest of Scripture. That's how we read the Bible well. That's his canonical context. Are you with me? You still with me? This is what we have to do throughout our time in the book of Micah. This is what we have been doing. We want to understand Micah for Micah's sake, but we also want to understand him in light of the cross and in light of the empty tomb. And we want to understand him in terms of our own lives and how to apply the word of God. So in short, we don't take Micah 5, 1 through 6 out of Micah because we know that it has to do with Jesus. We know this. And we don't take the book of Micah out of the rest of the Bible as if it's unrelated to the rest. We try to understand Micah in his original context first, in his canonical context or whole Bible context second, and our lives third. We won't always be perfect at this. But the Bible is not just a historical document that we have to investigate like archaeologists. The Bible is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And the good news is that we have the Holy Spirit to help us. Amen? Amen? So because of the Holy Spirit, we can trust that the Bible will always, always be impactful for your life. And it will always be clear on the message of salvation. Amen? So let's jump in and look a little bit closer. Taken as a whole, Micah chapter 5, verses 1 through 6 are all about a coming ruler promised by God who would rule the people of Israel justly and save them from their crisis. And this is the great shepherd king who gathers and rules his people. So there's four things that we can learn about him, about the shepherd king in Micah 5, 1 through 6. First we learn he's born in humility. He's born in humility. Verse 1 brings us back to Micah's present time. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. So coming off the back of chapter 4, verses 11 through 13, which were a lot of good news, this is bad news. The nation of Judah was just presented like an ox who would trample the enemies of God, like a sheaf on the threshing floor. It was a a triumphant image of the faithfulness of God for his people. But the crisis in chapter 5, verse 1, seems worse Daughter of troops is a reference to Jerusalem and a call to muster whatever strength it has left in order to fight. 
The language is desperate, and the situation in Jerusalem is dire. A siege is laid against Jerusalem, which we know occurred. We know the Assyrians besieged Jerusalem for about a year and a half. And as the food ran out in the city, things looked hopeless. Micah says, with a rod, they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. That's a reference to King Hezekiah. Kings served as both royal monarchs and judges. He was humiliated through the siege of Jerusalem. That's what this phrase means, strike on the cheek with a rod. Think about it. First, this king can't stop an army from invading his land. Humiliating. Second, we we learn in, in 2 Kings 18 that he had to pay huge amounts of money in tribute to all the companies, or not companies, countries he hired to protect his, like Assyria. And third, he openly mock, he's openly mocked by the enemy, which is recorded in Isaiah 36. He's humiliated in several different ways. So truly, these words are appropriate for this humiliated king. He's been smacked on the mouth with a rod or a scepter is another translation of that. And that's another layer of irony here. The royal scepter was a symbol of authority. It was a symbol of royal rule. But here, the king, King Hezekiah, is smacked with it. So again, the situation in Jerusalem is not good. We already learned that one solution that God will respond with to their crisis, the crisis of invasion, is deportation. We learn that in chapter 4, verses 9 through 10. God is going to deport his people out of the land. But that will be the Babylonian invasion, not the Assyrian invasion. They happen a couple hundred years apart. But in verses 11 through 13, we're given a timelier solution to Assyria's invasion. God will fight for his people. God will destroy the invading Assyrian army and deliver his people from them. And we we know all about those things. We know that the people of Israel were eventually deported to Babylon, and we know about the destruction of the Assyrian army. Both happen in history. But the third solution given here looks even further into the future. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. So God's third and final solution given here in Micah to Israel's problems will will be to provide them a new kind of ruler. But this ruler is not born in the palaces of Jerusalem. He comes from the lowly city of Bethlehem. The kings of Israel and Judah were glorious in their beginnings born in those palaces, born in wealth. But they were humbled by the Assyrians. And the king, this king, the true king, will be the exact opposite. He will be born in a lowly situation, lowly Bethlehem, and will ascend to the heights of heaven. Bethlehem was a small village not far from Jerusalem. I mean, we know all about Jerusalem, and we know all about Bethlehem, right? Bethlehem is one of the most Christian cities in the world, we, we don't need to be told much about it. But back then, as Micah tells us, Bethlehem was an insignificant place. It was so insignificant 
that the region surrounding Bethlehem had to be named as well so that people hearing his words and reading this book would know where he was talking about, Bethlehem Ephrathah. It was so insignificant that Micah didn't even mention the city in chapter 1 when he listed a bunch of small towns in southern Judah, even though Bethlehem is right in that region where he's from. It was so insignificant that it couldn't even field a clan of soldiers for the armies of Judah during this siege. That's what that means here. It was too small to be among the clans of Judah. A clan was something like a thousand men from a particular region or town that would go and fight. So this is a really small town if they can't field that. But from this place of insignificance comes a ruler better than Israel had ever seen. And we know, we know and we can see that this is because God describes him as a ruler for me. See that in verse two. From you shall come forth for me. That immediately sets this king apart. Unlike the the kings of Judah and Israel who seem to only serve themselves, this king would serve the Lord. And though he would come from a humble town, this king's coming forth was from of old, from ancient days even. So now here's an example of different approaches to interpretation. We know that this side of the empty tomb, this prophecy applies to Jesus, that he came from of ancient of days. He was born in Bethlehem, of course, and the Gospels apply this passage directly to Jesus. And we also know that Jesus was not at any time created by the Father, that he is eternal and preexistent. We know that he upholds all things and through him all things were made. And so when we read this coming forth is from of old, from ancient of days, our first inclination is to understand ancient of days from of old in that sense, from Christ's preexistence. But what did Micah mean originally? We have to start there, remember. So in our minds, Bethlehem is significant because Jesus was born there. But in Micah's mind, Bethlehem is significant because David was born there. This whole passage has to do with the promise that God made to David that one of his sons would sit on his throne forever. 2 Samuel chapter 7. For a ruler to come from Bethlehem means that this ruler would rightly sit on the throne of David. It's all connected to him. And for this ruler to come from days of old means that this is the ruler that was foretold to David who would sit on his throne forever. This is the long-awaited-for Davidic king who would rule the people of God forever. And for the people of Judah, hearing this in the midst of a crisis, this is unbelievably good news. God always keeps his promises. He is always faithful, even when we aren't, and the people of Judah were not. They might be deported to Babylon in the future, and certainly will be, but that that didn't nullify the promise God made to David. He would still provide a king to rule his people forever. And that's, that's always the case with our Lord, always. He's always faithful to the promises that he makes, even when we are not faithful. We often fail, we often sin. 
And we certainly don't deserve God's promises, but our failure and our sin does not mean God casts us off. When we are not faithful, God is faithful. And he brings us back to himself. Amen? That's the promise that the people of Judah hear from Micah's mouth here. But this side of the empty tomb where we live, we know even more than Micah and these people. His words extend even beyond David. The Gospel of John tells us in John 1, 1 through 3, again, we know this very well, but listen to these words in in light of Micah. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. King Jesus sits on the throne of David, praise God. But that throne is also the throne of creation. And he's been sitting on it from the beginning. He is the ruler promised to the people of Israel. And he is God himself who takes away the sin of the world. He is both. Amen? Amen. He was foretold of from God to David and he was coming forth from the beginning to unite the people he has predestined from ages past to unite to himself. Jesus was born in Bethlehem, but he was God eternal. Bethlehem was a lowly city. He was born among farm animals and placed in a feeding trough. But even then, he was king of the universe. Amen? So Micah tells us the shepherd king is born in humility. And second, we learn that he gathers his people. Verse 3. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And so in case the people of Judah and the people of Israel think that God will send this ruler immediately, he reminds them that he's going to give them up to exile. The people of Judah will be taken out of their land. And we see here once again that the theme of a woman in labor from chapter 4, verses 9 through 10, which had to do with the exile to Babylon. And the same is true here. The woman gives birth to the return of the people to their promised land. It's a fulfillment of that image all the way back in chapter 4. This is good news. The exile will not last forever. The punishment is not forever. God will restore his people. But there's a second promise here in this verse. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And that's been interpreted a few different ways. So I'll give you a couple that I think fit well together. First, we can understand that that this refers to the people of Israel in exile, returning to their land. Israel is brought back to the promised land. That's helpful. But... I think it's more than that because that's not quite nuanced enough and here's why. It seems like Micah has in mind a certain group of people, a certain group that had been lost, probably even the northern kingdom of Israel. Right? How would they be restored, the northern kingdom who's exiled through the Assyrian invasion? The promise of verse three is that they would be restored in this one leader. And the rest of his brothers, it says, will return. 
But the problem is that the northern kingdom of Israel doesn't have a specific return from exile apart from the return of the kingdom of Judah at the end of 2 Chronicles. After the exile, those who return to the promised land are considered the people of Israel. And those people are the immediate descendants of those who were exiled from Judah. So interestingly enough, Judah comes to stand for the whole nation of Israel. So how is it that the northern kingdom, 10 more tribes, how would they be restored? Is it that they're symbolically restored in the descendants of the nation of Judah as they return to the promised land? Partly, Persia conquers the whole area, Babylon and Assyria. So undoubtedly, the Jews in Persia who are sent back are partly made up of the northern kingdom of Israel. But I think it finds its ultimate fulfillment in Acts 2, in the upper room where the Spirit falls on 120 Jewish disciples. And you'll remember that day, 3,000 people believed the gospel and were baptized. And these 3,000 were Jews from all over the known world. That's why the Holy Spirit enabled them to speak all kinds of different languages. And undoubtedly, some from every tribe came to know the gospel that day. The whole nation of Israel represented in the day of Pentecost. So the church starts in Jerusalem, right? It is a Jewish community. And then it goes to the ends of the earth. And this is how the nation of Israel was restored to the family of God. No longer are there northern kingdoms and southern kingdoms. Those are gone in the person of Christ, united by the Spirit. And they're both made one and ruled by Christ, the head of the church, just as Micah promises. So verse 3 finds its ultimate fulfillment after the resurrection of Jesus. And it continues to be fulfilled today as those who belong to the people of Israel by descent believe the gospel and come under the reign of Jesus Christ, their Messiah. And so whether you belong to the Jewish people by heritage or another ethnicity, all are brought to the Father through the same Son, through Jesus. There is no other way. He is the King who gathers his people. And all those who belong to him will not fail to come to him. Praise the Lord. The shepherd king gathers his people. Before that, he's born in humility. And third, he is empowered by God. He shall stand and shepherd the flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth and he shall be their peace. We're given a triumphal picture of the coming king here. Notice all the various ways he excels as a king. First, Micah tells us that he will stand. That's a reference to the coronation ceremony that takes place in the temple of the Lord. The crown prince would stand by a pillar in the temple, and he would be made king in God's presence. And this ruler is made king in the presence of God and with God's approval. Then we're told that he will shepherd his his flock, which sounds comforting and sweet and quaint to us. But for the people of Israel, that immediately reminded them of David. Shepherding the people was a common metaphor for leading and judging. 
And it, it became even an even more important metaphor after David, who was very famously a shepherd before he was a king. So to shepherd the people meant to them to, to lead righteously, just like the greatest king Israel ever had. This is the ideal, right here in verse four, the ideal Davidic king, greater than even his father David. And he rules next in the strength of the Lord. This king would not be weak like the other kings of Judah and Israel. They would not be humiliated by invading armies. This king would rule in the strength of the Lord. Verse one presented us with King Hezekiah, struck on the mouth with a rod. This king, though he comes from humble beginnings, will rule in strength. And it won't be some type of self-confident strength either. It will be the strength of the Lord. But he won't just rule in strength. He will rule in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And there's two significant, significant things to notice about that statement. First, it tells us about authority. This king does not rule in his own authority, just as he doesn't rule by his own strength. He rules by the authority of the Lord. Notice in your Bible with me, if you have the ESV like I do, the capitals, L-O-R-D. That, that means it's the covenant name for God, Yahweh. He will shepherd the flock in the strength of the Lord, in the strength of Yahweh, in the majesty of the name of Yahweh, his God. The, in the name of the Lord means to, to do something in someone's authority. So he leads by authority. And when we pray, we end a prayer in Jesus' name, we are pleading with God by the authority of Jesus Christ who has brought us close and gives us the ability to pray, who brings us before the throne. And so in the same way, this king leads by the divine authority given to him. God empowers this king with strength and with authority. This is God's agent on earth. He has invested in this ruler the right to exercise his authority over all people. So he doesn't simply inherit a throne. He's given full divine authority to rule from God himself. The other thing to notice about this clause is that this king rules in the name of the Lord, his God. Idolatry was a constant problem with the kings of Israel and Judah. It's why they're in so much trouble in the first place. But that's not the case with this king. He would be wholly devoted to the Lord. And finally, the beginning of verse 5, which is connected to this whole run of attributes, tells us that this ruler shall be their peace. Whose peace? The people. His subjects. The people for, the, the, he'll be the peace for the people he rules over. Just like God who brings peace to the world back in chapter four, verses three through four, this king brings peace to his people. But more than that, more than even that, he is their peace. Zechariah 9.10 says of the Messiah, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. And Isaiah says something similar in Isaiah 9.6 as it describes the Messiah. 
You know this well too. For unto us a child is born. To us a son is given. The government shall be on his shoulder. And his name shall be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The testimony of Scripture is clear. The coming king would not just bring peace to his people. He would be their peace. He is the personification of peace. So if you were listening to Micah give this prophecy, hearing about this wonderful coming king, you would be filled with hope because immediately surrounding you is anything but peace. In the midst of the crisis of the invasion of Assyria, hope for the future, for anybody involved, anybody in that city would have been clung on to for dear life. So this ruler would have been exactly what they were looking for. He would rule in God's strength and God's authority from, from sea to sea to the ends of the earth and he would be their peace. This ruler is Jesus Christ. He has been crowned king of the universe and he has ascended to his throne. He shepherds his flock, the church, and he rules in the strength of the Lord, a strength that is unbeatable. And to him alone belongs all dominion and authority to reign. And he is our peace. Peace between God and man can only be found in King Jesus. He didn't just bring peace, although he certainly did that. He is peace. He is our peace. He is our rest. He is our Sabbath. He is our comfort. And if you are burdened today, weighed down by the stresses of life and the sins of life, hear the words of Jesus from Matthew 11. Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28. Come to me. Come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. That's Jesus. This is the ruler that God has provided for his people and whom he has empowered to rule. The prince of peace. This ruler is from humble circumstances. He gathers his people to himself and he's empowered by God. Fourth, he defeats God's enemies. When the Assyrian comes into our land and treads in our palaces, then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men. They shall shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword and the land of Nimrod at its entrances. And he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and treads within our border. When I first started prepping for this sermon, my first thought was to leave most of verse 5 and 6 for next week. Because on first reading, it, it seems a little disconnected. But it's actually not. It's all part of the same oracle. It's all part of the third response God has to Israel's crisis. It's one reason I, I brought up biblical interpretation of the Old Testament in the beginning of the sermon. Because I'd like to take verses 1 through the very beginning of verse 5 out and just preach that and end with Jesus as our peace. That'd be a very nice wrap-up to a sermon. But I don't think that's really what Micah would have done. That's not really what he did do. 
You see verses five and six give immediate hope to the people of Jerusalem. So once again, we have two interesting interpretations of these verses, and they're worth considering. The first interpretation is to understand these verses as a popular song at the time of Micah, like a, like a nationalistic song that got them really excited to fight against the invading enemy. So Micah, in this interpretation, is taking up this song and changing something, correcting something even. Look at the language of these verses again. It's all about how Israel and the people of God will beat back the invading Assyrians, which of course they don't do. It's a lot of bravado. It's a lot of self-aggrandization. Certain leaders of Israel, they say in this song, will be victorious over invading armies and beat them back to their capital even, even to Nimrod, another name for Babylon. But Micah flips the popular song on its head at the verse, in verse six at the very end when he says, and he shall deliver us instead of and they. So in this interpretation, Micah corrects some false beliefs that the people have by placing the Davidic ruler, the promised ruler to the throne of David here, inserting him into the song, suggesting that these seven or eight Israelite rulers that they mention will fail and that the one promised ruler will ultimately deliver. I think this is a very fair and good interpretation of these verses. Except I think there's maybe one problem. The ruler was not sent in time to save Judah from Assyria or Babylon. So now Jesus is God and God is, God is about to deliver his people from the Assyrian invasion himself. But this interpretation falls a little bit short with me, although I like it a lot. There's a lot here to like. The other interpretation sees Assyria and Nimrod, Babylon, as stand-ins or symbols for all of God's enemies. And by extension, they stand for the spiritual enemies of the people of God, namely Satan and demons. So the seven or eight leaders and princes of men stand for the people of God that he empowers to fight. So in this way, the coming ruler empowers his church to fight their ultimate enemy. And at the time, at the same time, it can be said he, he delivers us. He is the one that does that work for us on our behalf, both by dying on the cross and conquering death and Satan in the grave, and by continually empowering us with the armor that we need to fight our enemy. And this interpretation is, is fair, but it has some drawbacks too. It may over-spiritualize these verses and over-apply them to perhaps, right? They, they might even take them out of Micah and say they're only relevant for us. Although I think it's certainly true that God empowers us to fight his enemy with his word and, and by his spirit. That is true. So despite the potential issues, I favor the first interpretation. Although I think the second one helps fill it up a little bit. Which brings us back to the very beginning of the sermon. We do our best to understand these passages in their original context first, 
in their canonical context, second, and how they apply to our lives, third. And we do this with great humility, trusting the Spirit. So these verses, in the original context, maybe they were a song that Micah is reapplying now to the ruler who is promised. Certainly he is the one who will deliver. And we can't put our trust in earthly rulers. Right? We need to place our trust and our faith in the same ruler promised to the people of Judah, Jesus Christ. And even if it isn't a song, and Micah is telling us that Jesus empowers us to fight his enemies, that Assyria and Nimrod stand for Satan and demons and sin and darkness, then we must, by our, our greatest strength with the help of the Spirit, fight the good fight. Amen? Because Jesus is our peace. And we don't need anything else than that. Whatever the correct interpretation is, God is faithful. That's the ultimate message of verses 1 through 6. He is good. He is faithful. And the ruler that he provided for us ended up being more than just a Davidic king, an earthly king. He is God himself. The one born in Bethlehem, the lowly city of Bethlehem, the insignificant city, is king in heaven. And we worship him, don't we? All who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, born in Bethlehem, humiliated even more than that on the cross, all who call upon his name will be saved. And so is this king who reigns in the strength of the Lord and the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, is this king your king? Is he your peace? Verse 4 says, about the people, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. It's talking about us, our security and our peace rely only on the rule and reign of Jesus Christ. And we can actually have peace and have real security because he rules. Amen? He is Lord. And we, we proclaim him today. As we prepare our hearts now to take communion, let's bow our heads and ask him to forgive us of our sins and to make us better citizens that he rules over, that we would reflect him better to the world. Let's spend some time in personal reflection. ushers, you can feel free to come forward. Lord, you are our God. We worship you. Thank you for sending us the shepherd king, King Jesus, who rules in your strength, who rules with your authority to the ends of the earth. 
and who we can find peace and security in because he is our peace. Lord, we we pray now that you would give us hearts eager to find our peace in Jesus. Life is often unsettling for us, Lord. Often we are not peaceful at all. We're stressed out and we're anxious. We confess these things to you. We pray that we would find our peace in Christ. Lord, now as we come before your table, we are eager to proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We're, we're eager for your forgiveness. Amen.